Welcome, Harvest Church family, and thank you for joining us this week for our sermon podcast. We pray that you will be blessed and encouraged with the message prepared. Right now, let's listen in to this week's message. I can't begin to tell you what an honor it is for Trina and I to be with you here this morning. I, I think actually, Pastor Perry, we've known each other almost that entire time. You were, I mean, I was a young and beautiful missionary, and you were slightly older and beautiful pastor in <laughs> Auburn Hills. Am I right? It's been a long time. And, this, and actually, this is my third time to be with you, and, uh, but it's the first time that I had the opportunity, thank you, it's the first time I had the opportunity to introduce to you the most intelligent most godly, most beautiful woman currently consuming oxygen on planet Earth, and that would be my bride of 33 years, Trina. Thank you. Thank you for making it possible for us to serve in one of the most wonderful places on planet Earth, Africa. Some of you right now are going through a little cognitive dissonance because you're putting two words together in a sentence that don't usually go together, wonderful and Africa. But for us, it's wonderful. We love Africa. And if you don't mind, we have prayer cards on the, on the table as you go out. Please take a prayer card. Please put it in your Bible. Stick it on your refrigerator, whichever you open the most. And, and pray for us. Pray for us. Missions happens by prayer. Amen? Do you have your Bibles with you? If you don't mind, I, I'm a preacher missionary. I want to go right to the book. And I'm looking at the Gospel of Mark, chapter number 2. Mark, chapter number 2, and I'll be reading from verse number 1. Some of you um, are using electronic devices, and you're probably already there. I'm using the OGV, the old guy version, so it might take you a little bit to get there. It's on page 1,137. Mark, chapter 2. A few days later, when Jesus again entered Capernaum, the people heard that he had come home. So many gathered that there was no room left, not even outside the door, and he preached the word to them. Some men came, bringing to him a paralytic carried by four of them. Since they could not get him to Jesus because of the crowd, they made an opening in the roof above Jesus, and after digging through it, lowered the mat the paralyzed man was lying on. When Jesus saw their faith... He said to the paralytic, Son, your sins are forgiven. I'll never forget being in Shinshicho, Ethiopia with my student, Matthias Kasai, Matty. I was then serving at Addis Ababa Bible College, Trina and I, and Matty was one of our students, but he was also pastoring the Shinshicho Gubai Xabirabeta Christian, the Shinshicho Assembly of God Church in Shinshicho, Ethiopia. And he was putting together these outdoor meetings, and, and he asked me if I would go with him. So Matty and I and a bunch of famous Ethiopian singers and famous Ethiopian evangelists jammed into our Speed the Light vehicle, and we made about the six-hour drive south of Addis Ababa to Shinshicho. And every day, for five days, on the side of the church, we met with about, about 15,000 people. There was this huge, like, like cow pasture, in the, and the church had built like a makeshift stage out of, out of poles and, and dirt. And every day we would go onto that platform and we would worship Jesus all day long and, and preach and pray and teach. It was awesome. And the very first night, I remember stepping up to the pulpit, and as I did, Matthew came beside me because at that time I didn't speak him hark. And, and I walked up to the pulpit, and as I began to read the text... Matthew walked over and he, and he just he put his hand right on my Bible. 
And I said, Matty, what, what are you doing? And he said, Brother Steve, you have to stop. And I said, well, why? And he said, because there's a disturbance. I said, there's a disturbance? He said, there's a disturbance in the back left side of the crowd. So Matty and I, we, we both stepped back, and then we kind of walked over. We walked right to the edge, and we just kind of leaned because it was about 6 o'clock at night. And in that part of the world, when the sun goes up, I mean, if you're on the equator, the sun goes up and comes down at about 6 o'clock at night. And it was about 6 o'clock at night. It was dusk. The air was kind of like this vibrant pink because of all the dust, people jumping and worshiping Jesus. The musicians were still kind of tinkling a little bit on the keyboard over there. The singers still kind of singing a little bit. It was, it was kind of tumultuous and noisy because of all the people. And we leaned in to see what was happening. Happening. And then all of a sudden we saw what, what looked like this massive disruption on the very back left side of the crowd. And being phenomenal men of faith that we were, we both just kind of stepped back about like that. Because we didn't know what was coming at us. And what we could see was it looked like there was a man literally floating on the crowd. He was like he was laying on his back, and it was the most bizarre thing I'd ever seen, and we couldn't understand what was happening, but he would move this way, and then he'd move that way, and then he'd shift this way, and he'd shift that way, and people were kind of yelling and shoving and pushing, and so we were watching to see what would happen, and suddenly the front row just in, kind of intuitively split apart, and this man came, looked, it looked like he was just going to float right out of the crowd, but instead what we noticed was he was lying on a bed. And there were four men carrying that bed. Literally, there was one on each corner of the bed. It was a bed made of poles and long strips of leather. And they, they pushed their way through the crowd. They were all wearing jackets. They were overheating, hot with exhaustion from pushing through the crowd. They made their way to the platform. They set their friend on the bed right down in front of me. And then all four of them turned and got on their face, put their face right down in the dirt, and they began to pray. And I looked down at the young man. He was struggling to breathe. He was completely unconscious. I found out later on he'd been in that condition for three months. And I, I got down on my knees and I just, I began to pray. An Ethiopian evangelist came from over by the musicians and he joined me. He got down on the other side and he also began to pray. And as I put my hands on him, I realized he was also burning up with a fever. So we prayed for about three, four or five minutes. It seemed like just a short time. And all of a sudden I felt like I was done. I looked up, the evangelist looked up at the same time. We caught each other's eyes. He stood up and he walked over and sat back down and I stood up and I walked over to the pulpit. Well, when the friends heard us stop praying, they were excited and in anticipation. They, they, they quickly turned and looked at their friend and when they saw that he was still lying on the mat, all four of them then turned and looked at me. And I will never forget the look of disappointment in those four men's eyes as they looked at me and they looked at their friend, still unconscious, still burning up with fever, fever, still laying on that mat, struggling to breathe. They each took a corner. They heaved him to their shoulders and then up on top of their shoulders, to the chest and then up on top of their shoulders. They stepped down off the platform carefully because they didn't want to jostle their friend. And they shoved their way through the front row and then the second, then the third, and then the, all the way out, 15,000 people, they pushed and emerged out the back of the crowd and walked down that dusty road in Shinchicho, Ethiopia. When I was in Bible college, our teachers used to tell us that the most critical verse to understand the Gospel of Mark is found in chapter 10, verse 45, where Jesus says, he says, I came not to be served, but to serve and to give my life as a ransom for many. Now, 
I, I still believe that that is a critical verse, but I no longer believe that it is the critical verse for understanding the gospel of Mark. In fact, I've come to believe that the most critical verse for understanding the gospel of Mark is actually found in chapter 4 and verse 41, where Jesus is on the Sea of Galilee in the boat with his disciples. A storm drops down onto the, onto the Sea of Galilee and onto the boat. Do you all, you all remember that story? Jesus is asleep in the stern. The disciples are terrified or they're frightened for their life. Jesus stands up. He rebukes the wind and the waves. The word says the disciples were terrified. And he asks them, why do you have such little faith? And they said... Who is this? And I believe that that is the most critical question for understanding the gospel of Mark. And in fact, it is the question that everything in the gospel of Mark flows into and everything that the gospel of Mark flows out from. And that is the question, who is Jesus Christ? You cannot understand this text. You cannot understand any of the texts in the gospel of Mark without that fundamental question. I mean, even the feeding of the 5,000, the feeding of the 4,000, we, we tend to think of it as having something to do with feeding people, but it's really about the critical question, who is Jesus Christ? Demons being cast out, Jesus walking on water, healings and miracles. Even Mark 10, 45 means nothing if we don't begin to understand who Jesus is. I was in a conversation with a relative the other day, and he mentioned Jesus, Muhammad, and Buddha in the same sentence like those guys have anything in common. And I thought to myself, you clearly have never met Jesus Christ. If Jesus is just some teacher, if Jesus is just some prophet, if Jesus is just some philosopher or some philanthropist, then his death might be inspiring, but it's not vicarious. In other words, if Jesus is just some other guy, then he has no power to change you. He has no power to save you. Every story, every episode, every meeting, every discussion leads back to that one paramount question, who is Jesus Christ? And even in this story, we tend to focus on all the different facets. We, we focus on the four friends. We focus on the paralytic. We focus on the religious leaders. We focus on the crowd. And we often forget the most critical person in the room. Who is Jesus Christ? So Mark begins by telling us that the house where Jesus was teaching was packed. The entire house was so full that people were most likely spilling into the compound and up and down the road, everybody pushing and jostling just to hear what Jesus was saying. And Mark tells us that Jesus preached the word to them. And then suddenly, without any warning whatsoever, right in the middle of Jesus preaching, pieces of the ceiling just start falling all over them, just start dropping all upon them. And Mark didn't tell us that Jesus moved. We assume he's most likely that Jesus just sat there while this was going on. Now, one of the biggest challenges we have in 21st century America is understanding a first century Palestinian text. Because often what we do is we transport our reality back into the text and we assume that's what it looks like. So often, Americans, what we do is we'll transport what we have as our reality. Like, for example, everybody's masked up. You're all sanitized. You're all sterilized. You're all, you know, socially distanced. Some of you are online. And you've you all got sterilized hands. You're all clean. You smell like little flowers. I mean, that's our reality in 21st century America. But it wasn't that way at all in that room that day. In fact, the room was just jammed with people. And it was, it was absolute, it was chaos. 
In the first century, the houses, the roofs were built with long poles, and then they would lash them together with, with fiber. And then after lashing them together, they would create this mud, and it would, be, it would literally be this slather of stuff that was created with water and dirt. And if they didn't have something like cement, they would use like cow poop. Now, I know that sounds really gross, but cow poop, it hardens like a rock. And they, they would kind of put that all in that slather, and they would mix it together. So when you dig through that, which is the word Mark uses, you create a crazy mess. Imagine there was first the noise of scratching and then digging, pounding, breaking, interrupting Jesus' teaching. And then finally there was this thin shaft of light that pierced the darkness. And on the other side of that thin shaft of light was an eyeball looking through a little hole on the other side. I mean, in the hole right up above them. And they looked up at that thin shaft of light, saw the eyeball. Then the eyeball disappeared and a finger came through the hole. And then a hand and then two hands and then four hands and then six hands and then eight hands as they were ripping and tearing and pulling that roof apart. And they enlarged it again and again and again until a mat appeared. And the mat didn't come down most likely horizontal. That would take too long to dig. Probably it came down vertically. And they lashed their friend to it. And they dropped that thing in there vertically. And it was uneasy. It was unsteady. They were shouting. They were negotiating. Lowering bit by bit. They were yelling at each other, navigating the mat. And Jesus was just sitting there. It was chaotic. It was a process. And if they drop this guy right in front of Jesus, which is what Mark tells us, that means as they literally dug through the roof, the debris had to be falling all over him, all around him. And I imagine Jesus stopping his teaching and just waiting. And what do you think the expression on his face was? I mean, do you think Jesus was, was he ticked off? Was he angry? Was he curious? I see Jesus laughing. I see Jesus loving the moment. I see Jesus looking over at the disciples and doing the guy nod. You know the guy nod? Guys see each other and like, hey. I see Jesus doing the guy nod and maybe winking at Peter because he's, they're anticipating the victory that these guys are going to have, whatever, whatever this victory looks like. And then what about the guy on the mat? What was going through his mind? I mean, the Bible says he was paralyzed, which means he couldn't use his legs, but he wasn't vegetated. And it didn't say that there was anything wrong with his mind. So most likely he had his arms and his mental faculties, which meant that he was in on this. And he was probably not only lashed to the mat, but he was gripping the sides because falling off would not be good at all. So he's, he's holding on to it for dear life as they're dropping him in and he's negotiating, moving back and forth, trying to maintain his balance. And what's going on in his mind? Anticipation? hope and as he's craning his neck and wonder side to side trying to balance himself out all of a sudden he's eyeball to eyeball with Jesus Christ did he just kind of smile sheepishly you know <laughs> one of those kind of things did he swallow pensively did Jesus smile at him I mean come on Harvest that had to be a great moment Can you imagine that moment but have you ever noticed that Mark never tells us his name? Now, that's important, especially in that part of the world, especially in our part of the world, because a name describes you. A name speaks into you. A name challenges you. Or a name can discourage you. A name can shape you. A name can call you to weakness. Or your name can call you to greatness. Your name can define you. What was his name? At this point in the story, this man is defined by his mat. 
And what about his friends? Wow, do you have friends like that? I do. Friends that'll do anything for you. Friends that'll take a bullet for you. And you notice what Mark says. Jesus saw their faith. What does faith look like? Faith looks like four sweaty, willing to do anything for you, friends. Moving everything and digging through any barrier to get you an audience with the one person on earth that can restore you. Faith must be seen. If you have saving faith, you have to do something with it. Jesus sees their faith, their bold, intrusive, unrelenting action to get their friend into the presence of Jesus. What is your faith doing? Because faith acts, faith moves, faith is an action, it's active, it's not passive. Faith does something. Say that with me. Faith does something. And that day, you could feel the anticipation in the room, the clamor, the shock, and then the deafening silence as everybody strained to see what would happen next. All eyes were locked on Jesus and the man on the mat. And then Jesus leans in and he says to him, Son, your sins are forgiven. And at that point, the majority of the people in the room went, What? Seriously? Jesus, you're forgiving this guy's sins? I mean, isn't it kind of painfully clear what this guy needs? Did you not see the mat dropping through the ceiling, Jesus? Do you not realize this guy can't use his legs? I mean, okay, we don't know that he asked for healing, but I mean, it just seems kind of obvious, doesn't it? It seems kind of obvious the reason he's there. But remember the paramount question of the Gospel of Mark. Who is Jesus Christ. Because in that pronouncement, Jesus captured the mind-bogglingly destructive, diminishing nature of sin. Jesus seized the moment to clarify that sin diminishes, sin torments, sin destroys, sin kills, and there is no way of escaping sin, no matter your culture, your color, your language, your geography, no matter what, there's no way of escaping sin and its results apart from Jesus Christ. Sickness does not keep you from God, but sin will. The real human issue, our issue is sin. It's sin that keeps us from being everything we're created to be. It's sin that separates us from the one who so desperately loves us and has a purpose for us. And it's sin that separates us one from another. The real human issue is sin. Imagine Jesus in that moment, leaning in, smiling, and he begins by saying, Son. That's a small little three-letter word in English, isn't it? We often just read right over the top of it. We don't even see it. Son. January 11th, 2020 was the worst day of our lives. Our kids grew up in Africa. We would wake them every morning with a, with a kiss and a cup of Kenyan coffee. Life doesn't get a lot better than that. Every night we'd pray with them and we'd put them to bed and we would actually have them quote the verse that you have hanging up on your wall. I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength every single night. 
All three of our kids desperately love Jesus. Our two oldest are married to other MKs, missionary kids who desperately love Jesus. Our youngest son, Micah, was serving as a student. He was a student at North Central University, a senior. Micah was studying to be a youth pastor and then a missionary to Latin America. The little stinker grew up, and he was born in, born in Africa, born in Kenya, and he grew up in Ethiopia and Kenya. And while there, he didn't learn Swahili, but he learned Spanish. <laughs> I don't know how you do that, but he, he learned Spanish. He would actually sing songs in Spanish and communicate in Spanish because he had a burden to take the gospel to Peru. January 11th, Micah went home to be with Jesus at North Central University. It was the worst day of our lives. I have no idea how people can survive that without Jesus. I have no idea how people can survive that without the church. Thank you. Because I know many of you prayed for us. Thank you, Pastor Perry, because he immediately communicated, immediately, and began praying for us. And you may not know this, but it was your former pastor, Scott Hagen, who was the one that helped us navigate that in Minneapolis. Harvest has been good to us through the darkest and most difficult time of our life. But I can tell you this. Now, when I see that little three-letter word in English, son, it has gravity. For me, it's emotional. Because when I see that word, I think of inclusion. When I see that word, I think of intimacy. When I see that word, I think of identity. When I, think, when I see that word, I think of definition. It's his, it's his new name. It's like Jesus is communicating to this guy, you are more than this mat. You are more than this sickness. You are more than the sin that's held you captive. You are now mine. And the shame, the separation, the paralysis of sin in one moment with one word from Jesus was gone forever. Jesus was saying, son, you belong to me. You are mine. How can this be true? Because Jesus said to him, your sins are forgiven. Jesus cut right to the man's most critical need and the most critical need that we all have, the forgiveness of sins. Now, at this point, some of you are also probably thinking, I mean, at this point, Mark introduces us to other people in the room that day, teachers of the law. These guys were serious about the law. In fact, they, they wrote 600 volumes of interpretation on the first five books of the Bible because they wanted to apply the law to every aspect of minutia in the life of Israel. And they were there to check out Jesus and to see if he was a legitimate or a false prophet. And when Jesus said, your sins are forgiven, they thought to themselves, what is he saying? This man is blaspheming. Only God can forgive sins. And they're partially right. Only God can forgive sins. Remarkably, they didn't actually say it. They thought it. One scholar notes that it's a beautiful touch of irony that they're thinking this guy is pretending to be God and Jesus does something to demonstrate that he is God. He knew what they were thinking. And so he says to them, why are you thinking these things? Which is easier to say to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven, or to say to him, get up, take your mat, and go home? Right. Neither one. They're both human impossibilities. 
And then the key idea, but that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. Jesus is talking to the teachers of the law. This you is for them. These religious leaders pressed Jesus, constantly looking for his source of authority because they knew they knew that the authority to forgive sins is a definitive characteristic of Jehovah in the Old Testament. Only God can forgive sin. So if Jesus Christ has the authority and power to forgive sins, then Jesus Christ is. Who is Jesus Christ? And then Jesus turns to the man on the mat and he says, I tell you, take up your mat, get up, take your mat, and go home. That you was for him. And it was the most critical moment in that man's life because how he responded to Jesus determined his perspective of Jesus. Jesus, not only he pressed that question, who is Jesus Christ, to the next level because it's not enough just to think about it. You have to do something with it. That The answer to that question shapes everything in your life. Who is Jesus Christ? He shapes your past, shapes your present, it shapes your future. It shapes how you perceive everything. It shapes how you deal with everybody. It shapes how you see everything. It shapes your hope and your, your worldview. It shapes your present, your past, your future. Who is Jesus Christ? And that man didn't hesitate for a moment. He got up, took up, took his mat, and in full view of them all, he walked out. And the place erupted in praise and wonder. Amen. Who is Jesus Christ? And how will you respond to that? And right about now, some of you are thinking, Pastor Perry, I thought this was a missions convention. <laughs> what in the ding-dong does this have to do with missions? This guy, I mean, I mean, what does this have to do with missions? His wife's got that wicked, cool, Ghanaian jacket thing going on there. He just looks like a fat American white guy. But, but I mean, he's talking about Africa, but then what does this have to do with missions? Everything. This has everything to do with it. We do what we do because of who he is. Missions is not the mere response to human need or even a response to human sin. Missions is the response of the church to who Jesus Christ is. And because of who he is, we are constrained to plant the church of Jesus Christ among all peoples everywhere. Did you know that this morning in Africa, did you know that this morning in Africa, 83,000 people, I'm sorry, people are gathered in 83,000 local Assembly of God churches worshiping Jesus. Did you know that? 83,000 Assembly of God churches in Africa. Did you know that? Did you know that today, I mean, 23,000 men and women jammed at 382 Bible colleges across the continent that the Assemblies of God operates to take the gospel to all nations. Did you know that? And you're a part of that. And yet today, 867 unreached people groups in Africa. That means 199,484,190 people today still have no access to the gospel. 199,484,190 in sub-Saharan Africa have no access to the gospel of Jesus Christ. How will we get them to him? I imagine that the church is like the four friends. We each take a corner. 
We cover whatever distance we have to. We push through every, every obstacle. We dig through seemingly impossible barriers to get our friends into the presence of Jesus Christ because in his presence there's salvation and healing and wholeness and hope and eternal life, unrelenting, bold, intrusive, unstoppable, indestructible. That's the church of Jesus Christ. It was the last night of the meetings in Shinshicho. We've been there five days. And I remember stepping up to the pulpit that last night. I opened my Bible. The, the musicians were still kind of tinkling. People were still kind of milling about about 15,000 people in the field in front of me. And I remember as I took out my Bible and began to read, all of a sudden, Matt, he walks up next to me and he puts his hand right on my Bible. Puts it right on my Bible. And I turned and I looked at him. And I said, Matty, what are you doing? And he said, Brother Steve, there's a disturbance in the back left side. I said, dude. What is wrong with the people on the back left side of this place? He says, I don't, I don't know, maybe, maybe demons. I don't know, I don't know. There's something wrong with these people. So I stopped, and we both walked over to the side, and we, we, we craned our necks as we looked at the very back left side of the crowd, and, and there it was. It was like clamor. I mean, it, but this time it was acting in con, like in concentric circles. So in other words, something was happening there, but then it was kind of affecting people, like, like, like moving out. Are you with me? Something happened, and it just kept moving out. And we couldn't figure out what it was, but it was moving toward us. And so once again, as men of faith, we, we kind of backed up, and we prayed in the Spirit as we waited to see what would happen. And then we both began to hear it. What we heard wasn't clamor. What we heard wasn't anger. What we heard was praise. What we heard was Worship, And so we, we both, we just stepped up and we tried to see what was happening. And it moved this way and then it moved that way and it moved this way. And everywhere, whatever it was, was moving toward us. People were praising and worshiping Jesus. And suddenly, that front row intuitively again just kind of split apart. And when it did, this young man came walking out. And he had on a jacket and a big smile. And when I, he made eye contact with me, he looked at me, raised his hands. And he said, it's Stephanos, Jesus, Gaetano, Steve, praise the Lord. And I said, praise the Lord. I had no idea who that kid was and he walked out and I didn't realize who he was until I saw four men emerge from behind him one after another coming through the crowd and when they saw me they raised their hands and they said it's Stephanos Jesus Christos Steve praise Jesus Christ Jesus Christ is Lord and he walked to the front of the crowd and the young man when he raised his hands people all around realized who the man was, and the whole place erupted in praise and honor to Jesus Christ. Who is Jesus Christ? Who is Jesus Christ? It's not enough to ask the question. You have to push it to the next level. Who is Jesus Christ? And how will we respond to that? I'd like to ask you, if you would, would you, would you close your eyes and bow your heads? And even online, if you don't mind, right where you are, unless you're driving down the road, close your eyes and bow your head. I don't, I don't, I don't do this because of tradition. I do it for the point of focus. And I, I, want, I want you to ask, ask that question. Who is Jesus Christ? Ask it to yourself again and again. Say it. Who is Jesus Christ? Now, because, because everybody in this room most likely and most of the people online are literate, you're seeing the words, who is Jesus Christ? But for some of you, all of a sudden, those words are being, being replaced by images. 
Some of you are remembering your dad who was a raging alcoholic and he would beat your mother and he would beat you and he would mistreat you until the day Jesus invaded his life. And that mean man became the sweetest, most godly human being you'd ever seen in your life because of what Jesus did in his life. And it's changed your mother and it changed you and it changed your siblings. And some of you are right now saying, who is Jesus Christ? I know who Jesus Christ is. He is my savior. He is my deliverer. He is my Lord. He's my king. He's the one who delivered me and gave me hope. Some of you right now are applying that to your own life. You're saying, I know who Jesus is. I was worthless. In the eyes of society, I was nothing. I was thrown out. I had nothing. I was nothing. And Jesus refused to give up because he is relentless. My family had given up. My friends had given up. My church had even given up. But Jesus refused. Who's Jesus? I know who Jesus is. He's the one who gave me purpose and value and love and peace and hope. But there are some of you this morning, and when you ask that question, whether in this room or online, you got nothing. You got nothing. And you're saying to yourself, I don't, I don't know who he is. I mean, I've heard about him, but I always thought he was just like those other religious leaders. I didn't realize who Jesus Christ truly is, but I, I want to know him. Like the Bible talks about, I want to know him like Pastor Perry preaches week in and week out. I want to know Jesus like that. And if I'm talking to you this morning, whether online or at home, right where you are, and you're saying, I want to know Jesus like that. I don't, but I want to. Would you raise your hand right where you are and say, Steve, that's, that's me. If you're at home, raise it up. I can't see it, but Jesus sure can. Raise it up. Thank you, sir. I want to know Jesus like that. Don't be afraid. Don't be ashamed. Keep it up, even at home. And I want to pray with you. Father, in the name of Jesus. I pray for every person this morning that's reaching out to you. And they're saying, I want to know Jesus like that. In their heart right now, they might be experiencing a, just a mash of emotions. Guilt and shame and hope just mingled in with peace and anticipation. It's a conviction of the Holy Spirit as he's drawing them to know Jesus Christ. And Father, I pray today as I pray for them, the brother in this room and the people online, that they would confess, Jesus, you are Lord. Jesus, you are Lord. And that today, Lord Jesus, you would thoroughly, completely, fundamentally change them. Father, in the name of Jesus, we pray. In the name of Jesus. Amen. Thank you for joining us once again for this week's sermon podcast. We pray God's blessing on you as you face your day and week ahead. 
For more videos, messages, and other content, make sure you follow, like, and subscribe to all of our social media accounts on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram at GoHarvestEG. And be sure to check out our website at GoHarvest.org for the latest information on events and services. Until next time, stay encouraged and don't miss the opportunity to be a blessing to the world around you. God bless. Thank you.